516-620-3602. That's give2wbai.org or call 516-620-3602. I look forward to seeing you there and tag your it. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Advocating for Justice with Arthur Schwartz heard Mondays at 5 p.m. It is now 6 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News being presented today by The Independent. Good evening. In the news tonight, tensions between the U.S. and Iran continue to escalate. The NYPD's use of facial recognition software goes largely unchecked. The fight over abortion intensifies as states continue to restrict access. And we speak with Rachel Carey, director of a new film about women providing safe but illegal abortions in 1960s Chicago. You are listening to the Evening News on WBAI, hosted by The Independent, New York's free reader-supported progressive newspaper. I'm the Indies associate editor, Peter Rue. Ukraine's new president, actor Vladimir Volensky, dissolved the country's parliament Monday, minutes after he was sworn into office. Zelensky, who won over 70% of the vote last month, slammed parliament as a hotbed of self-enrichment and promised to stop the war in the East against Russian-backed separatists. A liberal populist, Zelensky played president on a much-watched Ukrainian television program for years prior to his election. In an early morning tweet, President Donald Trump warned Iran Monday that it will face its official end if it continues to threaten the United States. Iran's foreign minister quickly responded in kind on Twitter with his own message, never threaten an Iranian. The exchange came hours after a rocket landed about a mile from the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. It remains unclear who fired the projectile. No one was harmed. White House, State Department, and Pentagon officials have raised security alarms over Iran in recent weeks, which their European and Iraqi allies have dismissed as overblown. The White House announced Sunday it will unveil the first phase of its Mideast peace plan at a conference expected to take place in Bahrain this June. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shatea warns any American peace plan that ignores his people's aspirations for an independent state is doomed to fail. Here in the United States, nationwide protests are planned for Tuesday in defense of reproductive rights. The demonstrations come after lawmakers in Alabama approved a near-total ban on abortions, including in cases of rape and incest. Georgia and Ohio have banned abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Missouri is considering a ban after eight weeks, and numerous total bans have been proposed in Texas. A number of reproductive rights rallies are scheduled for here in New York Tuesday. Find one near you at StopAbortionBans.org. More on this story later in the broadcast. A 23-year-old transgender woman seen on a widely circulated video being beaten by a crowd in April was found dead in a Dallas shooting on Saturday. Here's Malaysia Booker speaking at a community rally following the April incident. This time, I can stand before you, whereas in other scenarios, we are at a memorial. Investigators say there is no apparent link between the beating Booker suffered and her murder. The New York Department of Environmental Conservation rejected a proposal from Williams Company last week to build a 23-mile gas pipeline from New Jersey to Rockaway, Queens. 
The pipeline, which was intended to carry natural gas fracked from the Marcellus Shale region in Pennsylvania, has been heavily opposed by environmentalists over the past three years. They contend the pipeline poses a significant threat to surrounding beach communities and marine life while contributing to climate change and an increased dependence on fossil fuels. Williams Company's water permit was rejected without prejudice, meaning the company is free to reapply. As facial recognition technology has raised privacy concerns and warnings of racial profiling, San Francisco and other cities have banned its use by police and other government agencies. But here in New York, little is known about the NYPD's use of facial recognition tech, including whether it is sharing the data it collects on unsuspecting New Yorkers with federal authorities, like Customs and Immigration Enforcement. However, internal NYPD documents published last week by the Georgetown Law Center on Privacy and Technology offer some clues about the software's misuse. In one instance, an NYPD detective noted that a suspect looked like Woody Harrelson and used a photo of the actor to generate a list of possible candidates. Officers identified someone they believed was a match, not Woody Harrelson. The NYPD disciplinary hearing for Daniel Pantaleo, the officer captured on video placing Eric Garner in a fatal chokehold in 2014, entered its second week Monday. Among the revelations so far, Pantaleo's supervisor, Lieutenant Christopher Bannon, sent a text shortly after the incident remarking that Garner's death was not a big deal. This is Eric Garner's mother, Gwen Carr, speaking outside the hearing Friday. To hear that officer say today when he got the call that Eric was probably deceased mm. and said no big deal deal. Shame. Disgusting. No big deal. Now, was, if one of your loved ones or one of his loved ones was was on the ground dead and someone come up to you and say, it's no big deal. We'll be back with more news after this break. And welcome back to the evening news on WBAI 99.5, hosted by The Independent, New York's only progressive print newspaper. I'm Peter Rue, and we turn now to the state of women's access to reproductive health care in America. A number of states are considering or have passed legislation greatly limiting access to abortion. This include, includes Alabama, which passed a law last week effectively banning abortions, even in cases of rape and incest. These draconian measures on the state level come amid the Supreme Court's new Republican majority. 
to discuss this topic further, we are joined by Jessica Mason-Piclo. She is a legal reporter for Rewire.News and host of Boom Lawyered, uh, a podcast. And she's the author of The End of Roe vs. Wade, Inside the Rights Plan to Destroy Legal Abortion. And on the other line, we have Jenny Brown. She's a women's liberation activist and a former editor at Labor Notes. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that this station is in the midst of a pledge drive and a donation of $60 or more will get you a copy of Jenny's new book, Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. To pledge, call 516-620-3602, text 41444, or find us on the web at give2wbai.org. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent, excellent. Um, Jessica, let's start with you. Perhaps you could give us an overview of these uh, anti-abortion bills that keep popping up in various states and, and why, this, why this flurry of legis- legislation now? Sure. We have uh, really since the 2010 election seen an increase in activity at the, in conservative states looking to restrict abortion rights and access. But this year it's reached a crescendo with more and more states passing what are patently unconstitutional abortion bans. And so a couple of the most what we'll call frequent flyers mm. of these types of bans, um, we have several that uh, Republican lawmakers call quote-unquote heartbeat bills. Mm. Um, these are um, misnomers, and I'm happy to talk about why there's they're misnomers. For one, there's no heart um, to beat at six weeks. What what happens? These are these are bans that would effectively uh, ban abortion as soon as fetal heart tones uh, can be detected, which is around as early as six weeks in pregnancy. So we have seen variations of those that would end abortion at six weeks or eight weeks. For example, is is the legislation that just passed out of Missouri um, on Friday. So we have, we have legislation like that moving in Georgia, in uh, Missouri, I just mentioned, in Ohio, in Kentucky. Um, none of these bans are actually in effect, um, but they have been passed and um, have either been blocked by courts or are in the process of a legal challenge being mounted, and that is that is underway. Yeah, but as I understand it, um, these heartbeat bills have have come up before courts before. The Supreme Court has, uh, you know, not been, has not agreed to to hear these cases. So um, this must indicate a a greater degree of uh, confidence among anti-abortion activists. Anti-abortion activists absolutely feel emboldened right now with the appointment of Justice Kavanaugh. And you're right, states like like um, North Dakota and Arkansas have have in the past to pass similar legislation, and those bans have been blocked permanently by uh, federal courts of appeals. And the Supreme Court did not step in and overturn any of those. So. If the rule of law holds, all of these bans should be dead in the water. But the fact that state lawmakers are going after them so vigorously, and in the case of Alabama, just passing an all-out um, abortion ban shows, I think, the, the proof of just how emboldened they feel. They really do feel like they have a moment where the courts are on their side and will give them what they're looking for. Hmm. And and Jenny, why don't you take this one? Uh, these restrictions, they're going to mean uh, a lot of women are going to have to travel farther. It's going to make it more difficult, to say the least, to obtain uh, this health procedure. Who's gonna, who are these laws going to impact the most? 
Well, obviously they're going to they're going to impact people in the South and other states where where they've um, already been experiencing a lot of uh, restrictions. Um, you know, six states only have one abortion clinic, for example, Mississippi, um, and so that's that's one area. Um, the other thing that's that's going to really um, uh, show is that what they're what they're really aiming at is they want to increase the birth rate and. And um, we've seen we've seen a lot of panic around the lower birth rate, as I detail in my book, um, uh, Birth Strike: The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work, um, among you know establishment think tanks and and uh, people who are trying to um, uh, basically have a program that we call small government, big families, which is they don't want to spend any any money on government programs. But um, they do want to increase the birth rate. So rather than do what they do in Europe, which is make it easier to have kids, they're making it um, harder to uh, to access abortion and birth control. And that that uh, program has been rolled out already for for many women who it's very hard to get abortion and birth control. Hmm. Um, and of course, if you don't have money, if you don't have good health insurance, then birth control is much further out of reach. And then uh, for abortion, obviously. It's very difficult um, in states like Texas, where a lot of uh, clinics have been closed as a result of, of laws that, that prevent clinics from being open. So, um, uh, and as with everything in the United States, that hits women of color harder. Mm. Yeah, so let's get to the birth, the idea of the birth strike uh, a little bit uh, a little bit further on because I, I think that's a fascinating um, concept to ex- explore. Uh, uh, right now, I, I would like to take a look... Um, Jessica, you've written about this uh, case that that the Supreme Court is weighing whether to take right now. That pro, uh, it's an Indiana law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and disability when it comes to fetuses, and it places a requirement of a burial requirements on aborted fetuses. Is this something you think uh, Roberts Court is going to take up? Well, they had an opportunity many times to turn the case away, and they haven't. They've conferenced on this case uh, 14 times so far. And while um, that doesn't necessarily indicate that they are going to take it, it indicates that they are thinking very seriously about it. And it's one of three actual actually petitions that are pending before the court that they could take up that could do um, lasting damage to abortion rights well before the question of these six-week bans or these all-out bans were to get up to the court. There's that one. There's another petition out of Indiana that also has a mandatory delay and ultrasound requirement. And then there's there's a case out of Alabama that bans the most common form of second trimester abortion. And the Roberts Court is considering whether or not to take that up as well. Hmm. Um, yes, this Indian, the other Indiana law you mentioned, that would basically require women to make two trips to the doctor uh, before obtaining an abortion, correct? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, the purpose of these laws, um, you know, we have the all-out bans that are clearly taking a direct shot at the legality of abortion, but then we have a whole series of challenges that really chip away at rights and access. And the question before the courts will be, how strong is the recent abortion rights win in Holman's Health v. Hellerstedt? That's the 2016 Supreme Court case that struck the Texas requirements that abortion providers have 
admitting privileges at area hospitals and clinics meet certain architectural requirements of standalone surgical centers. Um, the court is con- also has a case out of uh, Louisiana that's almost identical to that. So um, there are there will be no shortage of opportunities for the Roberts Court to weigh in on the fight over legal abortion should it choose to. Mm. And uh, relatedly, there was a, a recent court case that had absolutely nothing to do with abortion before the high court. And you've written that it's it's relevant nonetheless, and it's kind of an obscure case, a franchise tax board of California versus, versus Hyatt. Uh, you want to... You mm-hmm. say that, that that sort of indicates where the Roberts Court is leaning right now. Do you, would you like to um, explain? Sure. Real briefly, um, the case involved whether or not citizens from one state can sue a state in their, in their home state. So this involved a citizen from California who moved to Nevada and then sued the state of California in Nevada. And the question was whether or not states could be sued in, in that capacity. And uh, this conservative majority on the court just wiped away over 40 years of precedent and said, no, they can't. And it's an example of a very political campaign to under, undermine a rule of law. And we've seen this with the court before, for example. They did it with union rights in the Janus case most recently. But what is unique about this case is that Justice Breyer issued a very passionate dissent from the holding of the case and said effectively that the court has decided to upend over 40 years of precedence because five members of the court are now in a majority position when they were previously in a minority position. And he asked what precedent will be next and specifically cited Planned Parenthood versus Casey for that proposition. Hmm. Now, that's kind of in the weeds, and there's a lot of tea leaf reading there, but that's what Supreme Court uh, folks do. Justice Breyer had a bunch of cases to choose from in terms of being concerned about which precedent would be next. And he is not the kind of justice to um, be very hyperbolic or, you know, he is a data man. So he very much is is a analytical, straightforward kind of guy. Um, And so for him to choose Planned Parenthood v. Casey to cite is significant. We should pay attention to that because he's letting us know what he thinks the conservatives are thinking. Hmm. Uh, Well, that's something to uh, that's something to look into. For sure, uh, Jenny. So, birth strike here—it's stealing—it it deals a lot with what uh, you know our society considers women's work uh, and ch- child rearing. Basically, might these abortion restrictions be looked at as a form of forced labor? I mean, these lawmakers, many of them white men, are literally attempting to force women into labor. Am I right? Yeah, I—I I, I mm. think you could you could <laughs> safely say that. Um, I think we've, you know, in the feminist movement for years, we've sort of asked this question, why are conservatives opposed to both abortion and contraception when contraception is the main thing that would reduce abortions? And why do they claim to be so uh, concerned about fetuses, but then vote against every kind of thing that would help families, such as health care, child care, paid family leave? Um, and I, uh, we argue in the book that... Um, that it's all of a piece. It's basically an agenda to um, to have childbearing done on the cheap in the United mm. States by comparison to other countries, um, and that uh, that women and all parents are really fed up with with uh, the conditions that they're facing. And so, in our group, um, you know, many of us have one child and have decided not to have a second, and many of us have decided not to have any children because the conditions are so difficult. Um, and we call this a spontaneous birth strike. You know, it's not planned. Mm. People aren't out in the street saying, I'm, I'm on a picket line. But at the same time, it has caused a lot of panic in various precincts, including um, 
you know, among uh, among our government officials, and they would they would like to see the birth rate rise for various reasons, which don't have much to do with what the 99% needs, but they do have a lot to do with what the 1% needs. Hmm. And, and you've written that American women have yet to realize their potential bargaining position. What's it going to take for women to realize that potential, and what do, what do they do with it? Well, I think we need to get off of this idea that abortion is primarily a cultural conflict between, you know, religion and, um, you know, an ethical consideration and look at the economic roots of the situation. And and in um, European countries where the birth rate went down, uh, they tried everything, including banning abortion and banning birth control. France has a long history. Um, and then finally, in the 90s, the, when, after the feminist movement, they... Uh, they realized, oh, well, if we want to raise the birth rate, we, we need to make it easier to have kids. And so they instituted very long paid parental leaves, child care for everybody, um, on top of already having a national health care system, and uh, shorter work hours than we have here. And that made it a lot easier for folks to have kids. Um, here we're facing a, uh, you know, employing class that doesn't want to give us any of those things, mm-hmm. and they'd much rather have us... Um, just have children and, and put all the burdens on the parents, all the burdens for the cost of child care, the cost of, um, of you know, having to, having to go back to work uh, immediately after you give birth, all of these things um, that we're facing here, you know. Uh, but I think we do have some bargaining power because, uh, because they really do want us to, to produce more kids, and they're not, um, they're not willing to give us any of the things that we need. The problem is that people think that they, um, they're alone in, you know, oh, gosh, I can't make it work. I can't find a decent, uh, you know, uh, child care arrangement. I can't, um, I can't manage while I'm working full time to, to uh, be a parent. Uh, yep, and we're, we're um, running out of time here, Jenny. Sorry. <laughs> I hate to rush you. Hello? So, pe- yeah. so people are blaming themselves, and, and, uh, and we think that we need to see it as a system that relies on our unpaid labor to function. Great. Well, that's why people are organizing and fighting back. Um, you can find uh, a, a, a pro-health care rally, a pro-reproductive rights rally near you at stopabortionbans.org. There's going to be nationwide rallies tomorrow. I'd like to thank our guest, uh, rewires Jessica Mason Piclo and Jenny Brown, author of Birth Strike, a copy of which you can obtain by donating to this station. We'll be more after this brief. We'll, we'll be back with more after this brief break. In Greyhound Station. She says And welcome back to the evening news on WBAI 99.5, brought to you by The Independent. I'm the Indies Associate Editor, Peter Rue. We close tonight's broadcast with a look at a new film currently playing at City Cinema's Village East that takes a look at a group of women who banded together to provide safe but illegal abortions during the 1960s. It's called Ask for Jane, and here is a preview. We just had a student die from drinking rat poison. Uh, no, we don't know that she was pregnant. 
What happened? I saw her go in my drawer and take a razor. My parents are really religious. I can't go home like this. Hello, Nancy? Do you think we can get together $1,000 for Patty? Let's see who's awake. What if we had women call my dorm room? Hello? And we can tell them to ask for Jane. This is Jane. Jane Doe. It would be anonymous. 23-year-old? 30-year-old mother of four, 20-year-old college student. <sighs> Thursday. I just want you to know that I know what you're doing. Apparently, we are the abortion seven. Wow, right there in the paper. I want to have some. We're up to 30 women a week now. If you need volunteers, you can call me. This is your whole life you're putting at risk. I feel like it's my responsibility to help. You lied to me! You're not a doctor? We're all criminals in this room, and that includes all of you. Women's bodies are always in men's hands. But this was us doing it for us. And joining us on the line to talk about this new film is director Rachel Carey. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's excellent to have you. And we just have a few moments here at the end of the broadcast. But um, mind telling us a little bit about what inspired this film and, and what attracted you to this project personally? Sure. So I'm a filmmaker. I, you know, I like to do stuff that sort of politically inflected genre stuff. And a friend of mine out of the New York theater community approached me. She had learned about this group called the Jane Collective, who are a real group in late 60s Chicago. Hmm. And they uh, essentially ran kind of like an underground spy network almost to help women get safe, illegal abortions from real doctors in in uh, 1960s. So I thought it was a fascinating story, and I couldn't believe I'd never heard about it because they were... You know, they were very active. I think they helped over 10,000 women in, in the late 60s, early 70s. And so Kate and I both thought it would be a great story for a narrative film because it brings up a lot of really interesting issues around abortion rights and, and women's activism. Yeah, but it seems it's a little bit uh, it's very relevant to, to what's happening today. Uh, what, does your film have a, a message to women uh, you know, in, in the present day here? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, part of what we're trying to do is educate people about, you know, what it was like before abortion was legal. I think that's been forgotten. You know, there's an effort to, to drive it back to that point without really looking at how things actually operated back then. You know, how expensive illegal abortions were, how women were left infertile, and, you know, and how essentially, in spite of all that, people got abortions anyway, which I think is, is probably exactly what would happen if, if we went back to that policy again. So I think that was part of it. And also, it's a story about women's activism and women taking control over this situation. And, and so many of the stories pre-Roe v. Wade are kind of about victimization and women dying back alleys. And so this was a way to, to look at that time period from a slightly less depressing perspective and, and a more active one, I think. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, folks can catch Ask for Jane at City Cinemas East Village East. Um, and it is playing at least through this week, perhaps uh, get an extended run. Who knows? Uh, thank you for joining us and listening to tonight's broadcast. You've been listening to the evening news on WBAI, hosted by The Independent, New York's progressive print newspaper. I'm Peter Rue. Thank you for tuning in. Good night.
Mark your calendars for a special event with Tom Hartman, that's me, and WBAI's Leonard Lopate on my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Don't miss the brutal role guns have played from the enforcement of slavery, Native American genocide to post-Civil War racism, and the solutions we can put into place now to stop gun violence in America. It's Saturday, June 8th from 7 to 9 p.m., $40, plus you get a free book. Come hear me interviewed by Leonard LePate. The Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment at the Commons, 388 Atlantic Avenue in New York City. The $40 ticket will include the event and a book. There'll be a Q&A afterwards, so bring your questions. Get your tickets at give2wbai.org. That's give2wbai.org. And you can also call to get tickets at 516-620-3602. That's give2wbai.org. Or call 516-620-3602. I look forward to seeing you there and tag your it. This is WBAI New York and 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was the WBAI Evening News. And if you appreciate what we bring to the table on a daily basis, giving you a perspective of news that is unique and distinctive uh, throughout uh, the tri-state area and beyond, please consider becoming a financial supporter to this radio station right now by calling 516-620-3602. That number again is 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org online. Stay tuned for Counterspin coming up. This is WBAI New York and wbai.org online.